You're listening to The Spiritual Awakening Show. I'm your host, Brent Spirit, and this is another part of the ongoing Kundalini Awakening series. Now, as I said before, I don't know everything there is to know about Kundalini, and I am adamant about the fact that the process is highly individualized for everyone, though there are general, universal themes. And so for that reason, I invite guests on to share about their experience with Kundalini, so we can all learn feel validated, and gain some of their insight for getting through the challenges. Today's guest is fascinating. His name is Mahisi Kaplan, and he's got over 30 years of Kundalini experience. He's also spent 15 years as a Buddhist monk, and we had a rich conversation all about it. Be sure to check out brentspirit.com for more free content just like this, you can find the video of our chat as well as the other parts of this series on my YouTube channel as well. My YouTube channel is called Brent Spirit. You can support me and this work by hitting follow and giving a rating and leaving a comment and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean. Thank you so much. Enjoy this conversation with Mahisi Kaplan. joined by Mahisi Kaplan. Welcome, Mahisi. Thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation all about the Kundalini process. Yeah, not a problem. Look forward to it. All right. So I'll give you a little bit of an intro here, Mahisi, for our audience, and then we'll get you to share your story. You've got a really fascinating one coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective than some of the things that I've shared so far mm -hmm. uh, throughout the series come from a, a Buddhist background and I really appreciate the ideas from Buddhism and I would love to see the way that you've incorporated it into your Kundalini process. Mm. So Mahisi is coming us today from Devon's South Hams in the UK near the sea, really beautiful landscapes. I was just looking up uh, some images. They're really, really stunning, stunning place. And Mahisi's got over 30 years of Kundalini experience and 15 years of training as a Buddhist monk. Today, Mahisi shares his wisdom online. He's got a YouTube channel and that's actually how I found you, Mahisi, in your work. I was browsing YouTube. I think somebody had sent me your channel and they said, hey, check out uh, some of these talks. And I really enjoyed not only your messages, but there was a palpable feeling of peace coming through what you were sharing. And there's a difference between, you know, I listen to many different speakers and they all transmit mm -hmm. something significant, but from your videos in particular, I felt peace, not necessarily an energetic transmission. It wasn't even very flashy or loving. It was just very peaceful. And listening to your voice was was soothing. It was comforting. And your storytelling was, was really enjoyable. And so I, that's why I reached out to have you on the show. I think our audience will really benefit from what you have to share today. Thanks. As well, oh, thank you. As well, along with your YouTube channel, I, I know that you offer spiritual direction and support. You offer online retreats and classes to those traveling the journey. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're having difficulty and uh, you're a resource that they can reach out to. So today... 
my intention with this series is to have guests on like yourself that are grounded coming at this whole far out topic of spirituality and spiritual awakening from a human perspective that is clear and I'm I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. The intention behind this series overall with these interviews that I have is to have people on like yourself to share your story, to let others out there know, hey, I'm not the only one going through this really weird stuff. I'm not the only one. There's a guy like Mahisi out there. He's been through this and he's stable. He's able to talk about it with confidence, not as a victim. And not only that, but also not with intense attachment to some of the more flashy, exciting phenomena. And that's something that I got from from your talks. You were mentioning a little bit about a very common theme that we see amongst people that go through Kundalini process, which is attachment to the story. Either the story of Kundalini is happening to me and I'm a victim. This is a really bad, difficult thing that's happened to me in my life, almost as if you know they've got like a, some sort of diagnosis and then on the other hand, there's the attachment to the fascination. Wow, this amazing thing, Kundalini has happened to me and I'm a little special and I'm a little oh. bit, uh, you know, I'm certified spiritual, right? Yeah. And on my journey, I seem to have fallen into the latter camp. I wasn't really victimized by this. I didn't feel that this was a horrible thing. I got excited. I said, whoa, this is really cool. Kundalini is happening to me. This is a sign of something great. I'm I'm almost I'm I'm special. And I think that reflects a little bit throughout my work and my series itself, right? This is very mm -hmm. Kundalini focused. I really love it. Um, I, I think that I can be honest and admit that I do have some attachment to the Kundalini uh story. Um, and so I really love the way that you were speaking about this topic of attachment to the story. And there was a point in my journey where I met with my mentor who had gone through Kundalini process as well. And I said, Hey, look, you know, really insane things are happening to me. Do I keep this to myself, private, personal in the way that, you know, some other people out there are very secretive, very tight lipped about some of their phenomena and experiences, or do I start openly talking about this? What do I do? And she said, look, some things, they must be kept personal. They must be kept private. They're sacred. Others don't need to hear about it. But a few things here and there, when the time is right, with the right context, share. Just so that people know that, yeah, this is a real thing, that this is a possibility, that there's more to life than just the you know material world, that there are potentials to have energetic phenomena, to have uh, spiritual mystical experiences and whatnot. And so with that said, I would invite you to share your story with that sort of intention. Please note, we're not going to, you know, look at you and say, oh, look at this guy claiming this or claiming that. No, we're, we're here to share just to let people know they're not alone. They're not crazy. Support is out there. And like I said, you're a great storyteller as well. And so let's all sit back and enjoy a little bit of our conversation here today with Mahisi. Mahisi, please take us back to those early days there was sort of inklings of spiritual process, of kundalini process happening for you. How did it all start? Um, hi. Well, uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, 
I just want to premise this by saying you've got to take what I have to say with a pinch of salt. I don't believe there are really any kind of uh, absolute experts on this subject. And so, you know, I offer this in the spirit of letting whatever sort of um, understanding I've I've acquired over time share share it as best I can. But I'm not claiming to be the last the last word on anything, even though I may sound like I am at times. So uh, I guess it's interesting to start looking right back into childhood because I think people have inklings of the fact that there is something enormous inside the sphere of their experience that is not the I that they feel that they are, that they're actually in that interior space. They're living in association with something huge that is of high voltage and um, is enormous and is uh, very, very powerful. And I believe all human beings have a semblance of awareness that this thing, this other thing exists in them. And it, it can be a great source of anxiety in, in life period. And I think schools of psychology that I'm interested in would argue that the presence of this other thing inside of our subjective space that is not I is a source of um, stress and anxiety for us because we don't really know what to make of it. It's a kind of subliminal or subconscious bewilderment. You know, what the hell am I supposed to make of this? And in you, the school of, of Jungian psychology, the process of <clears throat> drawing on the intrinsic benefits and blessings of what is there is the process of individuation. So the individuation, in a sense, is coming into conscious relationship with this huge high voltage presence, but remaining coherent as a human being and not becoming so grandiose and inflated that you think, you know, I am the one. And uh, so I would say, and I'm, I'm sort of mentioning this because, you know, the inklings that I'm going to point to, I would say are footprints that what you're calling Kundalini leave as um, uh, hints of its presence, for example. So as a child, um, I would say that, you know, the earliest uh, memory that I would have that's relevant to what I'm trying to say would be wondering about where is the end of the universe? And, and then reaching the point where I've, good sense, well, if I've reached the end, then what's beyond the end? So there's a searching or a sense of there being a scale, something of great scale that's almost infinite in its scale that I was living in, you know? So that was just a very early sign, and that was happening, you know, when I was like three, four, five years old, you know, this kind of wandering. Then another thing that started to occur when I was young was I would find these transitional spaces, like sitting in the middle of the, st in the stairs, you know, not in a place, but in transition between this, this sort of seeming solidity of place or certainty of place. And I would ask myself, uh, who am I? Where is the I that, where, where, 
where am I in my experience? And I would look to find myself inside of my experience. And then I would have this kind of almost, um, it's like a bolt of lightning would go through me, like a huge electric shock. And I now in later life understand that really this was a kind of defense mechanism against what I was discovering that I could not find or see the self that everyone was telling me I, I am. It didn't actually, it wasn't discoverable. It, and and so <clears throat> associated with that insight was this huge explosion of energy that served to protect me in a way, but also to hint at the presence of something, again, huge in the vicinity of my life that I really didn't have much cognizance of or knowledge of. So <clears throat> I would say these are all very early hints of the presence of this, this thing that, you know, you're calling Kundalini, but I want to sort of slightly unpack it and try and explore the possibility of its pr presence in other areas of our lives that we wouldn't typically associate with Kundalini. So, um, Next to that, I, you know, I, I started to get into photography. I trained as a photographer, and in the course of my time at college, I started to get this sense of a luminosity inside of objects. So my photography started to become a search for this sense of a kind of quality of light or, or energy that I was sensing inside of objects. And you can see that in some of my early photographs, quite high contrast. And, you know, I take a photo of a stone or something and, uh, you know, I felt like there was this life force coming out from inside of the stone. And um, again, this is early signs of being sensitive to something bigger than the kind of um, conventional packaging of my, you know, my sense of self. So then uh, kind of what happened next? I'm just uh, trying to remember the 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 next sort of thing that began to happen was I started to get this um, incredible sense of silence in the midst of busy places, and <clears throat> so my the sights and sounds would recede into the background, and what would come into the foreground would be this sense of space and silence, and that was more real and more present in some way than the all the activity that was passing through it. And there was this sort of sense of something eternal that was there before, you know, all these cities and people and everything arose and something eternal that will remain when they've gone, excuse me. So again, that sense of scale, the enormity of that field of awareness, again, was hinting it was a, it was a footprint of what was to come and i believe and um then um <clears throat> i mean i'm not going to go into the full story but i would say the first sort of intimate sense of an association with kundalini um impacting me occurred when i was staying at samueling monastery i was still only a teenager but i remember waking up in the middle of the night and it was the first time i really ever felt whole body bliss throughout my whole body something that i never experienced before you know just you know going to a sort of conventional school and all the rest of it this is 
not a topic of conversation. I don't think um, the idea of bliss is, is discussed in many schools, even today. And uh, so that sense of bliss, again, was an intimation of grace somehow emerging from something outside of me that I couldn't understand. I didn't really have a conscious relationship with, but it was beginning to penetrate, beginning to permeate into my life experientially. Um, one thing led to another, and uh, I think in my early 20s, I think I was only 21, I went on a retreat with a teacher called Chibunag. And it was on that retreat where he was teaching me uh, breathing exercises, and we were doing a lot of meditation that this sort of Kundalini, supposed Kundalini experience hit. And it's just a tremendous intensification of life force, you know, that you become conscious of, and it penetrates into our conventional self-structure. It breaks it down and it shows its face and you make that link, you make that, you, you, you synchronize with it, you make that connection. And my presumption is that it does it because in a sense, there's a readiness for it to emerge. It's not something I sought, it's not something I forced, it's not something I even knew existed. And so, you know, I'm not one of, I wasn't one of those people that sometimes see in the forum, how do I awaken my Kundalini? You know, that just doesn't make sense to me. What makes sense to me is respecting the process of inquiry and investigation and just take and accept whatever seems to be um, pertinent to that time and place. So when that experience happened and, and it, it was extremely intense i think i lost a stone and weight in about five days and it felt like there was a possibility i could die in fact but because i trusted that force i felt there was some sort of benevolence in it or some it was natural in some way i was willing to surrender to the process and I didn't overcomplicate it by thinking, oh, God, what's happening? Why me? You know, I don't want this or anything. There was just none of that. I just accepted it and and let it be. And in a sense, that's really been the case ever since. Um, some people were concerned whether I had gone crazy in some sense, and I got checked out by a few psychologists and everything. But I quickly realized that what I was experiencing was just sort of completely outside the realm of, of what people are normally dealing with. And, and I quickly recognized that in a sense, I'm pretty much on my own with this. Certainly at that stage, I didn't feel uh, there was anyone around who, who could particularly help me. So uh, I did start searching though for um, support of some sort. And I started going to the Edinburgh Buddhist Society, Edinburgh University, which was run incredibly well. I mean, they had some fantastic uh, teachers coming. And I met this young monk called Ajahn Anando at the time. Uh, he was a young American ex-Marine. And, you know, it's one thing to meet a kind of an old 70-year-old Tibetan Lama. You can sort of appreciate, okay, they've, they've got this quality of spiritual presence about them, but you don't necessarily identify with the life that they've led. It's another matter when you meet the kind of young, kind of funky American 
young guy who you can very much identify with the life that they've led, even though, you know, I was never in the Marines. I could just sense, you know, he was a Westerner. We could, you know, he wasn't that much older than me. And I was really struck and impressed by some qualities that he had. I, and I recognize I've not encountered this in a Westerner before. Also, he had a quality of composure about them, which was which was very impressive. And I think maybe subconsciously I recognize there's something here, you know, to learn. And I went down to the monastery for a festival day and then I met some other monks, all Westerners, all young. And I was pretty starstruck. I just thought, you know, there's a quality here that I'm picking up that, uh, you know, I need to get into association with. So I ordained and uh, became a Buddhist monk. And, uh, you know, Ajahn Anandu, as I said, was a Marine. So I did get subjected to quite a, a disciplined uh, regime. Which was good for me because, you know, I was a big softy, um, big softy mama's boy. And, uh, he, you know, we were getting up at four in the morning and we were doing, you know, long periods of meditation. And, um, you know, one thing that uh, I always remember is um, we went on winter retreat where we were doing about six, seven hours of meditation a, a day. And I got flu. And my normal expectation when I got flu is that I get to stay in bed and be taken care of. But... Um, he required me to actually just carry on doing the meditation, even when I had, you know, snot streaming down my face. Uh, I always remember sitting there because he he sat on a sort of high, higher, slightly higher seat in front of me. Him watching me <laughs> sort of, uh, going through these hours of meditation, and um, what I recognised is, you know, I was being strengthened by that, by learning to. Uh, face dis-ease, face discomfort, face what I regarded as a, a limitation or or a, a limit to what was reasonable for me. You know, had I been at home, I would be like been in bed waiting for him soup to be delivered while I listened to the radio or something. Whereas I wasn't getting that treatment, I was being told to face it. And what was remarkable is how from moment to moment I could transcend the discomfort and um, be uh, be okay, or have the experience of the discomfort being okay, and that's what the discipline forced me to do. So I know you're going to ask me, you know, how do I, or how did I incorporate the Kundalini experience into my monastic training? Well, I don't believe that having Kundalini experience. Um, uh, means that we are not, uh, we don't need to be responsible to the spiritual process in the same way as everybody else does. If you see what I'm saying, it, it, it's 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 not a Willy Wonka ticket, golden ticket to the chocolate factory. <laughs> you still got to do the spiritual work, and that spiritual work, I found, you know, was very much. Um, I was very much grounded in through the monastic training. And fundamentally, that was about 
facing things I didn't want to face, learning to cultivate the strength to sustain presence to those things. And all of that synced very well with my Kundalini experience, even though the, it, the sort of specifics of Kundalini were not being addressed. The fact that I was learning to um, cultivate the sustained presence was very um, enabling of the Kundalini being incorporated. Now, I wouldn't call it Kundalini from within the monastic uh, sphere. I just call it vit vitality or vital force. So, you know, and also it has a another quality to it, which we might describe as light. So it has this quality of light and the the presence of luminosities is very much there in the tradition I was in. And the presence of infinities is very much present in the in the uh, uh, tradition I was in. So, uh, and the idea of something being immeasurable and uh, the idea of being non-conceptual and all the rest of it. So there were plenty, plenty ways of me to translate the sort of Kundalini culture into the Buddhist culture where it made sense. So I'll stop there and see if you've got any, any questions. Right. right. So fascinating story so far. I've spoken about in my, in my series about some questions that I had, you know, why don't some of these teachers or traditions speak directly about Kundalini? For example, in the way that I'm here talking about, you know, mm -hmm. Kundalini awakening. So, so openly, and what I came to conclude for myself, I feel that this sort of satisfied my curiosity was that whether you're going through Kundalini awakening or not, the practice is the same. You sit with what's arising, you let it come up, you observe it, you let it go, right? You meditate on it in the same way. Would you agree that the way that you were taught to meditate applies across the board, regardless of what's going on inside you? Yeah, I, I, I believe I picked up some principles within the monastery that are, you don't have to be a Buddhist to subscribe to them, but nevertheless, they are universal um, and, and quite simple. And there's a story that I like in the tradition that really says a lot. Um, and it's a story where the Buddha is walking through the forest with a group of monks, and he picks up a handful of leaves and he turns to the monks and says, which is more, all the leaves and all the trees in the forest or the handful of leaves I hold in my hand? And they said, well, Lord, there's a lot more leaves and all the trees in the forest than there are leaves in your hand. And he said, so is that which I've understood, that which I've seen and understood can be compared to all the leaves and all the trees in the forest. But that which you need to know is a key to your liberation can be compared to the handful of leaves I hold in my hand. So, you know, there's a there's a real issue here. This is a real this is a real thing. I do believe there is an ignition key for all of this, and I think it's referred to in the Bible as well, where the Christ talks about you know the camel going through the eye of a needle. It's it's requires a certain kind of accuracy, a certain kind of focus, and a certain kind of understanding to understand what's critical and what's simply just fascinating but not relevant to your personal liberation and so the question of fascination is 
seriously problematic because fascination becomes a proxy for aliveness. It's a it's an alternative center of aliveness that then starts to serve as you know your core point of reference for when you're wanting wanting to sort of feel better. Um, and but it's an addiction. It's not it's not the true source of aliveness that we're all fundamentally seeking. It's a distraction, it's an addiction. And so in some ways, I think this is why the Buddhist tradition, and I think it's a skillful means, tends to keep things non um, sort of unfascinating. I mean, there's nothing particularly fascinating about being told that you've got to learn to be accommodating to pain. Right. It so doesn't serve your needs to be fascinated. And, and this is a very, very human thing that we do we become fascinated with all the leaves and all the trees in the forest. And there, and then we lose sight of the real core, simple mechanism of release that we are seeking or that, you know, we should be focusing on if we really want to progress spiritually. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. I, I know that Zen Buddhism is a bit more of an extreme when it comes to the dismissal of the fascination and on a phenomena. I think they have a word, a makyo, which is mm -hmm. like, um, you know, it's, it's a distraction or it's phenomena, it's relevant. It's like a very dismissive term that they use. So if somebody were to mention maybe, you know, well, some Kundalini phenomena, spine, my my spine is doing that. Oh, it's Macchio. Oh, I had some energy chakra thing. It's all Macchio. And within within the traditions that you practice in, did they have a, a term like that or an attitude towards it like that? Or were they more understanding and willing to hear you out, but then you would still return to the same practices and attitudes? Or were they also very, um, you know, ah, that's not a thing. Don't worry about it. No, I mean, there was room to discuss everything within the monasteries, okay. you know, and certainly within the monastic community, you know, there were many people having amazing spiritual experiences of all kinds. Uh, I've had many amazing spiritual experiences for all kinds, but also within that culture, there was as the community matured a growing recognition that all of these spiritual experiences arise and pass away. They all are of that nature and you can't really hold on to them. And so in a sense, they're just like farts in the breeze, so to speak. I mean, they, they're fundamentally not, I don't want to d d diminish them or dismiss them entirely, but they don't last. So they, they have no substance. So that, so, um, there was always this pointing back to the well. What is your, what is the relationship to your body mind right now? How integrated is it right now? How present are you able to be right now? Even if it's just boring and mundane, and you're doing the dishes, you know that's there's as much spirituality in that as there is in having you know clouds of lotuses sort of flying out of your crown chakra they're both fundamentally of this one taste arising and passing away so once you begin to in a sense attune to the momentum that is the course of life that river of life that movement of life which is the 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 flow of things 
arising and passing away. Once you attune to that, you do find uh, a core of stillness uh, within that is, in a sense, if you think of a wheel, you know, that's moving, every spoke on that wheel is moving, but at the very center, there's a point of stillness. So lotuses coming out the top of your crown chakra or you, or, you know, the sensation of water while you're doing the dishes and standing at the sink, they're, they're fundamentally of that sort of one taste of, of, of impermanence of, of arising, passing away. And, and the embracing of them all with equanimity results in this center of stillness arising. So, you know, one of my teachers always used to say, you know, the Buddhist tradition is fundamentally emphasizing stillness over and above luminosities and, you know, fireworks, because um, all of that is impermanent and and also it's a wisdom tradition. So we're interested in the phenomenon. And, and uh, as I've said in other interviews, I am a phenomenologist. So I'm interested in the phenomenon of lotuses coming out the top of my head. But I'm also interested in the phenomenon of, uh, you know, sitting in, sitting at a bus stop waiting for the bus. They're both phenomenon. They're both up for contemplation. So, you know, it's a contemplative tradition. And so we're looking at everything. We're looking at everything that can be seen, everything that can be heard, everything tasted, um, you know, all body sensations. So it's like an elephant's footprint. The Kundalini gets included in that, not excluded. So it's not diminished. It still has its, you know, it still is sacred in a sense, but it's sacred phenomenon. But also sitting at the bus stop becomes sacred phenomenon when it's pro properly understood. So then everything gets woven together into this singular tapestry. And right. in a sense, this is how I've related to my Kundalini. You know, I, I, I think if someone sat inside of my body, I mean, maybe the same in your case, if somebody unfamiliar with the sort of the way things can move sat inside of my body and felt what was happening when I sort of let it, let it happen. They would be, they would be a bit bemused. They'd be very bemused in fact. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I so, can totally see that. I mean, and so, you know, Kundalini is an evolutionary force of nature that, that much I can, you know, we can say, um, and, well, it's an evolutionary force of nature that's affecting us all. You know, we all have intimations of this incredible power, as they say, and you see it in movies. If you think of the Incredible Hulk, for example, you know, that moment, you know, where he's humiliated, where whatever, and then this force comes into him and he blows up into this giant kind of green anger monster. We all have that inside of us. That's the force, the voltage of Kundalini in a sense, expressed through anger. We all have a kind of um, uh, voltage inside of us, you know, that wants to sleep with every woman or every man in the world. You know, if we had the opportunity, you know, we'd want more than one partner. We'd want infinite partners. You know, we could, we could sleep with a Chinese person and an Indian person and, and, and everything. We've all got a bit of that inside of us. It's an appetite. 
that goes beyond what's humanly possible. It, you know, limitlessness is what we seek. You know, the Highway 61, the open road, the freedom. We all have an app. If someone said to you, I'm going to offer you all the money in the world, you'd probably say yes, because who wouldn't want all the money in the world, you know? So we've got that in us. Um, we've also got within us the idea of being seen by everybody. Everyone sees us, everyone loves us, everyone blesses us. We are a superstar. And think, just look at the word superstar. You know, how much energy is in a star? You know, luminosity, light, all of this. So, and it goes on when it comes to um, the whole process of understanding. You know, we we love understanding. We can eroticize it to the point where we want to know everything, you know, and we want to be a channel for all knowledge. We want to tune into the Akashic records. And, you know, it, so we, we have these fantasies of enormous high voltage limitlessness. But then on the other hand, we suffer from things like depression, uh, you know, depression really is, in, in my understanding, is uh, a symptom of our fear of coming into association with this high voltage energy. You know, it's a shutting down. It's a controlling, a shutting down. You know, all creativity comes from this high voltage energy. All genius comes from it. Anything, all beauty comes from it. All visions come from it. Um, and it it can be a source of incredible good because it will transform us into basically wisdom and compassion if if we establish the right relationship to it. But if we establish a greedy relationship to it or an unconscious relationship to it, bad things are going to happen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't take kindly to being mistreated in any way so it has to be treated with great respect and uh, you, know, you have to allow it to give you what gifts it chooses to give you without trying to juice its orange too hard the orange too hard or or or, or you know it won't it, it won't appreciate being used for personal purposes right right i really Some like yeah, it, it totally does. And and that speaks to those who feel that they have to now do something about their kundalini process. Okay, I've got kundalini. What can I do to make it work? It's going to do what it's going to do. And if you try to push or try to manipulate it or control it, yeah. like you said, you're going to find out it's not, it's not, it doesn't tolerate that. Well, I, you know, I had a an accelerated learning experience with that because, you know, I was stuck on a meditation cushion for hours and hours, days, months, sometimes all night sittings, you know, and I spent years trying to, you know, get it to do my will. And eventually just, uh, eventually you reach a point where, where you, there's a recognition, the futility, the futility of that effort. You just surrender in the end, you just surrender. You just give up. And, you know, meditation is very much about essentially learning to surrender and giving up and just let, letting the meditation do you as opposed to you doing the meditation. Right. Well let said. the meditation come to you because 
there's nothing wrong in trying to in trying to uh, manipulate things to go your way. I mean, that's what we're up to in any case. But what the process of meditation does is it, it frustrates it, it frustrates it to the extent that it eventually dies as a habit because nothing that you do actually works. Uh, but you've got to try it all and try it all more than once, but eventually you'll just recognize it doesn't work, you know? And you, you when that dies, then the real meditation kind of begins. Uh, right. That kind of, that kind of surrender. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience with meditation. Um, I, I, I practiced Vipassana for 10 days uh, mm -hmm. in a retreat. And the first few days I was, you know, all over the place, couldn't sit still, trying to adjust my cushion, trying to adjust everything. And during the interview with uh, the teacher, he mocked me. He said, oh, I see you at the back of the room. You can't sit still. He's And then he started to, you know, mimic me moving around. And uh, he was right. <laughs> And there was a point where even after he told me that, I still couldn't uh, settle in, but there was a point of that release. And then finally, I, I didn't want to get up. I was, I didn't want to move. It was, something had opened up in me, mm. but it was through the frustration. It had to be exhausted out of me. That's um, right. You mentioned a, a few minutes ago something. You, you said it really beautifully, and I won't be able to repeat it exactly the way that you said, but you said that in, in, in your view, in, in the view that you were trained in, the Buddhist view, everything is embraced. Not mm -hmm. Kundalini, awakening, washing the dishes, waiting at the bus stop. It's all embraced mm -hmm. impartially. You know, we look at them all impartially. Mm -hmm. I, I like to think of it as, you know, it's either all a miracle or none of it is. And I like the way that you said that, you know, we're not diminishing Kundalini. Yeah, it's a thing, mm -hmm. but so is sitting at the bus stop. Mm. So I'm curious now, some people have taken this idea that we see in some traditions where they don't put this huge emphasis on Kundalini awakening. They don't mm -hmm. talk about it. They don't have a name for it. They've taken, oh, because they don't talk about it, that must mean it's invalid and they do diminish it. And we see that sometimes in, in non-dual circles and from non-duality. Um, yeah. Can you comment on that? Are they misappropriating this idea of everything is to be seen equally and are they going the opposite direction and you know shutting down these processes and saying oh it's phenomena it's irrelevant it's it's uh you know ego attachment can you, can you comment on that a little bit yeah i mean i don't buy any of that i mean it's whatever is arising is has its has its place no matter what, you know, I don't want to go too deeply into the sort of whole neo Advaita tradition, but it, it, it's not something I align with because it, there's this kind of ideological fanaticism that I encounter in it, mm -hmm. you know, where it, you know, as it says, it just dis disregards everything, including life itself. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's an expression of where we are, but in by tendency as a, a, as a society, pretty disembodied from from the neck down inclined to acquire ideologies and apply them very aggressively and violently uh you know uh, getting a glimpse of something that may be true and genuine i don't disregard that but you know that is still in my estimation a place of unconscious incompetence 
uh, it's not it's not a mature uh, awakening you know because i think um um you know someone who has a mature awakening is in very inclusive of everything so i'm inclusive in a sense of advaita as a stepping stone but certainly not as definitive of a man point which they tend to claim right. that they're they're pointing to um and you can sort of pick it up in the in 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 the force of the way they assert this stuff you know that forcefulness it's not very free you know it's coming from place of compression and uh so i just don't buy that um you know uh, um i don't feel certainly in my tradition was dismissive of kundalini it, i don't think it understood it in the traditional kind of kundalini school kundalini tradition way <clears throat> but look there's this core teaching in 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 buddhism in fact even the reference to breathing if you unpick the word anapanasati the the word anapanasati which is often translated as breathing meditation that that word ana comes from the idea of atman but also atmosphere it has its roots in the word atmosphere. Now, once you start looking into what atmosphere means, you're looking at like a vapor sphere. It's it's a sphere of vapor. Now that may sound very far out, but if you just shut your eyes and look inside your body and look at the ex the experience you have of your body, there is actually no boundary there. It's it's quite vapor like, and it's a sphere of vapor. It doesn't actually have any edges or boundaries or limits so you're already into something enormous there that you're being referenced to so anapanasati and then the other thing the word pana comes from the idea of pranas so here you are looking at holy wind cosmic electricity kundalini chi whatever you want to call it but it's there simply in the word that is normally translated as mindfulness of breathing um, and then sati means being present to. So if, if if you translate it in an alternative way, you can come up with ideas such as being present to the electric the, the the electricity of the ultimate, or the aliveness of the vapor sphere. Uh, so again, I think it. It's misapprehended because of where we come from at this time and place in our in in culture. We 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 think, well, it's just the breath coming in through the nose. But this isn't what the Buddha was teaching. He was teaching about this whole body experience of what I call the inner breath or the subtle breath permeating through every uh, pore in your skin. And with pointing out instruction, all of that can be taught very quickly, so that you move away from this very mechanistic idea that we have of the breath coming through the nose and you feel this subtle movement of aliveness coming in and out through your toes through your knees through your through every through every cell simultaneously so then you're beginning to tune into this field this field of aliveness that is this high voltage uh, presence of kundalini and then it will start to do its work on you appropriate to your circumstances your 
make up your karmic sort of um, makeup and and then you know you don't force it from there you you pass the whole project over to that to life itself so it's a beautiful way of putting it that's really beautiful way of putting it you pass the whole project over to life itself thank you Yeah. yeah pleasure so you know and that is just the first teaching in 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 the buddhist teaching with reference to what is often called the four foundations of mindfulness so that you know all the kundalini is definitely there in it it's just not discussed in a similar way and there's what we might call the upaya or the skillful means the the means that are being used to facilitate your entry into direct experience of it is just different to the kundalini path i'm not saying it's better it's just an alternative approach so because what it just says is well look at the phenomenon that you can know so immediately we're not excluding those people who aren't having kundalini experience so we've already cast a much wider net by saying let's just start with the body itself we can all relate to that we've all got a body so that net covers everybody we don't have this exclusive community of kundalini experiences and all those who are outsiders who basically you know no one wants to be an outsider mm-hmm. you know my partner does not experience kundalini in the way i do so if i talk to her just in terms of kundalini she feels like an outsider but it doesn't mean she's not got a spiritual life it just but it, you know it turns her off and i believe it's probably the same for a lot of people yeah but then if we <laughs> if we talk about let's just start with the fact you've got a body that does well i can relate to that i do have a body and then, you know, what the Buddhist tradition starts to do is, well, it says, okay, you've got a body, let's focus focus in and see what it actually is. I mean, have you ever really inquired deeply into what this body is? And so then it gives instruction about how to do that in conjunction with this breathing that, that I described. So, that, you know, you start to uh, be uh, encouraged to look at the body in particular ways, you know, heart nails teeth skin liver blood saliva teeth just become aware of the fact that they're there you know and again you're not excluded from this because you've got all of those phenomena in the field of your experience so you're in a sense you're being what you might call gently scales in to something that is accessible and then that rabbit hole starts in a sense getting deeper and deeper the more you go through these foundations of mindfulness so you know you you once you make contact with say the saliva in your mouth then you can recognize that has a sensation associated with it is a sensation and so then you're into the second uh sphere of mindfulness which is to do with sensations and with pointing out instruction the sensation of the saliva in your mouth as a sensation doesn't have an end to it it's it's without limit you cannot say the sensation of the saliva in my mouth starts here but ends there inside the sensation you can't find an end to the sensation so again once all this is being pointed out, you start scaling in 
to a different way of experiencing the phenomenon, the seeming phenomenon of your body. And so once you get to the sensations field, and again, remember, you're constantly working with the breath in relation to this exploration, you enter into this third foundation of mindfulness, which is called Chitana Sati. And, you know, this is where the teachings can get very confusing because different teachers sort of describe it in different ways. But basically, you're, you're looking at the way your mind expands when it's in full cognizance relationship or full awareness of whatever you're experiencing, the sensation, and how it contracts when you suddenly resist it and you come back into being me against it or me being victimized by the pain in my knee or the or whatever so this is a way we scale people into and 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 in and you know as you get deeper and deeper then this process of awakening is going to occur you know this is an ignition to a great awakening because the thing that knows th this is a quality of awareness that is other than you. It's a quality of intelligence, a quality of universal intelligence that has this curiosity, you know, and you begin to discover, well, there is this wisdom faculty that actually wants to know this stuff and it's hardwired into the universe. And it's kind of like why we're here, you know, it's kind of like, um, this is kind of like human birth is like homework that we've been given to do in order to enrich in and deepen our understanding of all things. And once you start aligning with that homework, you feel like, ah, oh, right, I'm on, you're sort of on track or, and you can feel this deepening that that's occurring. And that can be done in association with the sensations and phenomena associated with Kundalini or not. You know, the Buddha said there are four ways people awaken, fast with little pain, or slow with little pain, or fast with lots of pain, or slow with lots of pain. So if you're slow with lots of pain, it may be that you're going to have to go through a whole Kundalini thing, you know, with all the sensations and purifications and everything that go along with that. If you're fast with little pain, you may not have a Kundalini thing because it's just like, boom, you know, illumination, everything makes sense, you know, the self ego self-axis establishes itself and you can just be a channel for for truth so kundalini may mean that actually we're down for a bit of uh, tidying up whereas people who don't have kundalini may have done that tidying up so it's not necessarily a great it's not doesn't necessarily mean we're we're the most spiritual person in the room right right does that make sense yeah, that makes sense. And that uh, is a good uh, way to reframe and flip the script uh, yeah. to, to, to examine it from a different angle. I, I like the way that you were describing, you know, we don't, nobody wants to feel excluded, right? We don't want to yeah. make it seem as if, you know, I'm going through Kundalini, you're not, I'm different, maybe superior, special. Yeah. Conversely as well, I think this speaks to a lot of people that are going through Kundalini who feel, which is probably the most common issue that I come across with people that uh, approach me about Kundalini, is they feel I can't relate with other people anymore. 
I can't relate with people who aren't going through the process. So rather than excluding others, they've excluded themselves. But what you're saying is, hey, we can all relate. You have a body, you have spit in your mouth. We can yeah. relate on those levels, right? Of course. Look, I lived with Kundalini experience for years without ever talking to anybody about it, really, because, you know, I recognized most people weren't experiencing this. It didn't make any sense to them. It may not be your intention to make people feel lesser than you or diminished. But I mean, if you start saying, I've got the spiritual the electricity going through me, it, people immediately recognize, well, I don't. So it, it immediately creates a point of separation. And, you know, I've sold incense on on the topness market, you know, surrounded by kind of market traders and stuff. And I would never speak to speak to them about this stuff unless it's kind of in jest you know, sometimes you know they know i was a buddhist monk so we we kind of make jokes sometimes but i don't feel any need for them to have any cognizance for the fact that i can feel my crown chakra wide open and i can feel a radiance sort of coming through me while i'm maybe standing there speaking to them you know just learn you know they don't need there's not a need for them to know this unless they unless the circumstances arise where there may be a need for them to know. And, and again, this is also built into the tradition. Our tradition, or, or the tradition I was trained in, was one where you didn't teach unless you were asked, in a sense. So also, same kind of applies to the whole sort of Buddhist side of, of the tradition. I really don't impose it on people unless they invite it. Right. And so you have to learn to accept that your specialness may not be visible to everybody. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the reasons we want to talk about it is because we want to affirm our specialness, if we're honest. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but you have to, uh, I, don't, I don't know in people's cases, but we have to ask ourselves whether there is some of that going on. Yeah. Yeah, there, um, there definitely was for me. Uh, mm -hmm. And you described, you know, the word you used the word mature, and I feel that there was a, a maturation process that I had to go through mm -hmm. um, to be shut down, to try and show, hey, this happened to me, I'm special, mm -hmm. and to people, just you know, <laughs> like what the hell is this guy talking about? Eventually, you go through the this maturation process, and I realized, well, now today, I don't, I'm almost not even a, almost, I am, I'm averse to talking about this. Um, yeah unless it's within a very clear context that, uh, you know, if That's I was at a party, school. yeah, like people know I'm into yoga and meditation. Yeah. And if I'm at a party and somebody mentions it, I, I don't divulge too much. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just uh, a lesson you learn. I mean, in the monasteries when I, you know, I felt special. I mean, my Kundalini experience was wild. It was a t total fireworks show. And no one else was having it. But then there were these other monks and nuns there that were had power, that were radiant beings that were I was impressed by that I that I knew were ahead of me in this journey. And they weren't having these experiences. So eventually I recognized, okay, I'm having this experience, but actually it's not making me more special than these other people who are getting there in some other way. And that helped temper my kind of the kind of 
natural grandiosity that's going to come along with this. Now, you have to have compassion for the fact that there is going to be inflation. It's an inevitability. So, you know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person because you became grandiose and inf grandiose and inflated. That is a stage in the journey, but the more mature stage in the journey is when that inflation bubble gets burst. So the, 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 the call is called stage three initiation, the inflation stage where you think you've got it. And you're, you know, the universe is talking through you. That's only stage three of seven. <laughs> so it's early stage. And it's called the it's called unconscious incompetence, the stage of unconscious incompetence, where you think you've got you're together, but you're unconscious of the fact that um you've made an overestimation. Mm -hmm. Then fourth stage initiation is called conscious incompetence or the depressive position. That's more mature than the charismatic stage. It's it's where there's a realism about hard this about how hard this is going to be to really fully integrate this into my human life. Uh, and uh, it's a much more uh, it's more modest, less charismatic. Uh, place to be and then it goes on to um conscious competence so you reach a point where you recognize ah oh, okay so let's call it kundalini is beginning to really integrate with body and mind and i'm you know my sense of self or my let's say my thinking mind is 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 no longer the governor anymore it's the servant of this and is being informed and serving this but there's still a self-conscious recognition that that has happened. And then the sixth stage initiation is called unconscious competence, where you reach a point where it's experienced just as, you know, this is just a natural way of being, you know, a growing up. It doesn't define me in any particular way. You know, the, the sun shines, but it doesn't just shine on me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just because I'm experiencing the sun shining doesn't mean that I'm special because the sun simply just shines anyway as the awakened mind just shines or the diamond body just shines or the divine within or the grace within. It just shines on, on, on you and it may well be that it's penetrated into your heart, penetrated into your mind, penetrated into your body and all that is more and more coordinated and flowing naturally. But that is just a birthright of every human being. Um, it just so happens that you've claimed your birthright. And seventh stage initiation is ensuring, setting up ways and means for other people to claim their birthright in the same way as you have. Beautiful. I, I really like the clarity of the breakdown there because it, it mm -hmm. makes it so so easy to understand where you might be and what is the work that you have to do without yeah. getting ahead of yourself. Um, and I, I, that's what I really like about Buddhism is that there's a, such a great structure around mm -hmm. all of this. You know, we're, they're not just waking it. They're not just, you know, making it up on the fly. This is a very, very old tradition that in some respects you could say 
maybe not has it has all the answers, not this necessarily all the specific answers, but it has the answers mm -hmm. to all of the challenges that we may face as we go through this. C can you comment on that? Do you think that? Yeah, no, I mean, I my feeling is there's a great depth of wisdom within the tradition. Now, I don't necessarily believe that even people ordained with ordained within the tradition are necessarily accessing the great depth of wisdom within the tradition. You know, we, it's debatable. It's like any tradition, you know, there's factions and different types of interpretation and there's literalists and there's interpreters and there's the, the works. Now, I'm de definitely, I'm an extreme interpreter. So, you know, you have to bear that in mind. You know, I'm not representative necessarily of other teachers that you may get more sense out of for yourself. But, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I see the Buddhist tradition as, as a vehicle. I don't, you know, I'm not a fanatical Buddhist. And, you know, I, I've taken a lot from the psych, Western psycho, psychological traditions and sort of woven it all together. But when it comes down to it, there's a degree of wisdom that comes from early Buddhist tradition that's very, very simple, very, very direct and incredibly potent. And, you know, this idea of, um, you know, the Buddha was not saying that life is suffering. He's not saying that at all. The Buddha is saying that life, you will experience suffering if your relationship to life is not clear or if your relationship to life is confused. And now that applies to Kundalini too. And those people who may be suffering with their Kundalini experience and, you know, I've seen I've seen these posts, you know, like, oh, I've got this twitching in my ear, you know, what am I going to do about it? You know, and it's, uh, or, you know, I've got this force pressing in my head. I didn't ask for this. How do I get rid of it and stuff? And it's like, if this is your attitude, then you, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get shredded. Yeah. It's going to be tough. I have a huge amount of discomfort due to the Kundalini process that pretty much goes on all of the time. I've just become accustomed to it and accept, you know, there is no escape. It's the wisdom of no escape. So what the Buddha's teaching was really saying with regards to this experience of dis-ease or suffering is that when rightly understood with wisdom, with insight, it turns into an experience of freedom or freedom from suffering. So that the, the sense of claustrophobia that we experience around suffering and the experience of liberation that we long for are like the front and back of a hand. And so the key to dealing with all this discomfort that may come about as a result of Kundalini is being able to um, associate with the unpleasant sensations. I'm not going to be able to sort of go into a full sort of uh, instruction on this, but you know, in, in broad strokes, it's about uh, being able to stay present to the discomfort disease and uncomfortable sensations in a con you know in a contemplative way until they reveal their essential nature which is always every sensation is always without limit and once you get identified with the limitlessness in your experience then the sensation just becomes far away so the forest masters used to say unless put it into kundalini language they used to say this kundalini Kundalini sensation of 
discomfort does not does not go away, but this Kundalini sensation of discomfort is experienced as being very far away. Uh, yeah. Because it's arising and existing as a very small thing inside of a much bigger picture. And that enables you to stay relaxed with the process, to not apply resistance and let the Kundalini do whatever transformative work that it's going to do. That makes sense. Yes, yes. So there's a, another story that I, I think is very important that I like to tell because it, it's just, it's very, very powerful imagery to do with the sensations that people experience, whether they're Kundalini or not Kundalini, but you know, certainly a lot of strong sensations that come from for people experiencing Kundalini. Uh, and that is um, the Buddha basically saying um, there were lepers, you know, leprosy, where you get that disease, the bubbling skin and everything in India. And they used to live in little communities. And one way they would manage their leprosy is by building a brazier, a fire with metal, grip some metal, and they would literally sear their skin or burn their skin over the brazier. So uh, the Buddha said the reason they burn their skin over the brazier is because they experience a change in sensation. They feel relieved of their disease. Okay. And then he said, well, if they didn't have the leprosy, though, would they be burning their skin on the brazier? Of course, they wouldn't because it's it wouldn't be a relief of disease. It would be the uh, be the making of of a disease that voluntarily that you didn't have to mm -hmm. subject yourself to. So he says. So so it is with us when we a lot think about the things we do in our life a lot of the things we do in our life even in relation to the kundalini sensations are to seek a change in sensation so as we feel relieved of our disease so you know we we're doing this constantly reaching for you know switching on the tv or or uh, picking up the newspaper or picking up the phone, whatever. It's, it's a constant process of trying to change sensation to feel relieved of a fundamental disease that, in a sense, is shaping all of this activity. Um, so the Buddhist tradition is trying to point us to the root disease that is the, you could say, the, the origin or the cause for all of this changing disease activity so we can inquire into what that disease is really about and when we find freedom within that disease then all then we just become still and economist and open and free and unresistant and we grow up does that we grow up that yeah sense? yeah that does it's it's very true. So I, I would curious. say, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would say so. Those people who are seeking to find the best way of dealing with the Kundalini experience, you know, I feel I learned a lot from my Buddhist training that that is is relevant. So fundamentally, you can't change the way it is. It is as it is. You know, you it's it's too late if you want to say I don't want this experience. You're having this experience. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're feeling oppressed by this experience, it's not that the experience is oppressing you, it's that you're fighting the way it is. You're resisting the way it is. And so the key to providing as much space to the Kundalini energy to do what it's trying to do, and it will be benevolent as long as you treat the process with respect. You can even talk to it in a respectful manner. Is just get out of the way, and you do that by learning. Read my lips, patient endurance. <laughs> Learn to patiently endure and just accept the way it is without making a big melodrama out of it and a personal story out of it. Just be patiently enduring of the way it is, and it will pass and, and bring gifts. Beautiful. Yeah. That's been my experience. Mm. Patiently enduring. One of my mantras during some of the very dark periods of my process, the purification mm. was, I, I'd read a poem by by Scott Killaby. He's a spiritual teacher. He wrote a poem that said, I sat with infinite patience and I now sit in bliss. And I came across mm. this poem almost, you know, by grace, by synchronicity. And I thought that's the answer. And I'll, that is the answer. That's it. I will sit with infinite patience. And he writes, I sat with infinite patience and I now sit in bliss. And I said, maybe the bliss will come, maybe it won't, but infinite patience, that's what I've got to do. And I like the way you've put it, um, patiently endure So in rising. The, in the Buddhist tradition, we have this, in the Theravada tradition, this ceremony that happens on full moons and half moons, and it's to do with the, the discipline of the tradition, which you have to think of in terms of a crucible or a container that facilitates intensification of life force that you then learn to let go of through consciousness. So it's a 10,000 word chant. It takes about an hour to do. And it's very, very fast and it's all done from memory. It's, it's quite a thing. But before that chant came into existence in the very early stages of the tradition, they still had the ritual, but they had this very, very short chant. And the first line of that chant is patient endurance is the supreme practice. And that is basically the absolute core of everything the Buddha taught. It's not exotic. It's not fireworks. It's not spiritual experiences. It's not being special. It's none of those things. It's about being able to get real and just stay with it without complaining. Patient endurance. Thank you. I think a lot of people will will take a lot from those very potent words there. Mm -hmm. So you left off your story, and we've had a really rich conversation so far. Mm -hmm. uh, you left off your story. You were in your 20s. You're practicing in the monastery. Mm -hmm. Take us through some of the next five, 10 years, uh, what was going on for you during your process, your awakening journey, your life in general? Okay, so there's a thing that you learn through the monastic training. It was called sila, it's called containment. So, you know, there's lots of sort of roles and things that limit you. You know, for example, Saturday night, I can't, first monastery I was in was near Newcastle. Can't just jump in the car and go down to down into the town. You know, that's what I've normally done. So, in that sense, I was contained, but then the impulse to do that, to seek this change in sensation was still there. So, you know, you feel that pull, you feel that pull, but you can't, because of the rules, you can't follow it. So 
you know, gradually what it does is it, it has a fuel that burns and then it dies. And then ev eventually you reach the point where it's Saturday and the thought to jump in a car and go into town just doesn't arise anymore because you burnt it out. And basically I did that on many, many levels because of the, the, the way Sila holds you and keeps you in a sense pinned means you're, you know, you're forced to face a lot of things. You might say, Oh, I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. So you have to just stay with that. Wait till that burns out. Uh, you might fall in love. I fell in love inside the monastery, you might fall in love with someone, but then you can't, you can't um, make that connection. You can't have that relationship. So you have to feel that attraction. And, and because of the containment, you burn that out uh, and it goes on and on. And you can begin to imagine, you know, you, you, you love the macaroni and cheese, but you don't see macaroni and cheese for 10 years, you know, so you fantasize about macaroni and cheese. And then eventually, because you can't follow that desire, eventually it burns out. And as these things burn out, you begin to notice that there's this spaciousness that begins to open up because, you know, all of those desires, which are, I would say, are really uh, sort of, um, you might call uh, regressed forms of kundalini, you know, because desires can run very hot and intense and be very uncomfortable. What what begins to happen is, you know, it's like all that heat begins to dissipate, the heat of these desires, you know, like you might light your coffee in a particular way in the morning and then because we couldn't necessarily make our own coffee, someone brings you your coffee and it's not done the right way, you know, you feel this incredible frustration and annoyance. And so the training is very comprehensive. It basically covers everything. So all of this stuff eventually gets burnt out. And then in the end, you just find yourself, well, this is how it is, you know, and there's an acceptance of that. And, and the interior space that is accepting of that is big. It's like, it's big, it's still, and it just lets the way it is be, you know, because it can't do, can't really do much about it in most instances. Now, some people will immediately say that must mean, you know, I'm not that passive. I don't want to become this kind of passive rug, this passive thing that's just a pushover. It doesn't make you a pushover at all because it means you respond to things with a great accuracy. And, you know, if something is needing to be addressed, you address it without fear, but also without fanaticism. You do it with accuracy, you know, so that's, um, you know, within us, there's, I've alluded to the Incredible Hulk, you know, this anger thing, I, I would call it as a as an archetypal force, it's a kind of a warrior energy. So you have regressed warriors, which are like mercenaries, or if you think of, say, the Nazis, sadomasochists, they're sadistic on the one hand, and then when they were defeated, they carried on fighting and turned into, flipped into a masochist state. But then there's the good warrior. So what's the, the, the good warrior is not a mercenary, but serves the good of the people, you know, and, and is as much more heart-centered in a sense. We've seen this in the Ukrainians, we think. The you know, Ukrainian military are good warriors. They're serving, the, the, they're fighting for the good of the people. And we like that. 
And then we see the Russian military, we see their sadomasochists and mercenaries fighting for themselves and fighting for you know, their own aggrandizement of their, their nation. So we don't like that. So what happens is, you know, you start to find the wholesome expressions of these archetypes. You start to become a good warrior. So that means you know how to use force and you know how to apply firepower when required, but you're not what they call a red knight. You're not like bouncing along on your on the balls of your feet looking for a fight, you know, like you see some young guys in town, you know, all muscled up and sort of, you, you know, that kind of energy. Whereas the black knight is much more like not a show off. You know, he doesn't show his weapons. He does not pull out his, his sword or his gun unless he really has to because the conditions require it. But he's he's not just like, hey, look at my gun, mm -hmm. you know. This is for shooting. This is for fun. Because right. the regress very also disrespects the feminine. So, you know, there's all of those things, you know, we can't go into it all, but there's, you know, there are all these layers. So in my monastic training, I became aware of all of those things and how the training was helping align me with the good warrior. With See, there's four quarters or four powers that, that exist, I believe, archetypally, king, warrior, magician, lover, or in the Buddhist tradition, we call them... Um, uh, we call them faith, energy, uh, mindfulness, um, uh, serenity, and wisdom. And, and they're, they're basically, they're two, a Western and Eastern description of the same thing. Okay, so, so we have these energies in the Kundalini. You could say they're aspects of this great voltage power, this great force. And they have uh, healthy expressions, and they have regressed expressions, and but they're they're all ex extremely potent. And you know, and this is the issue we're faced with. So, for example, um, and everyone will have seen this when it comes to the king archetype. The healthy expression of the king is blessing, power. And, you know, when you go to see Prince Charles, you're not really going to see Prince Charles. You're actually hoping to be seen by Prince Charles. And it's his act of seeing you that makes you feel somehow blessed. Um, and that's an archetype, you know, and it's all like, I mean, the British are somehow really good at living the mythology of these archetypes out you know the whole red carpet thing is insulating the king from being grounded so he can stay connected to the divine the crown is to do with the crown chakra and connection to the divine etc etc so you know the, there's all of this but the regressed forms are very interesting because that's what we encounter more often than not not a man or a woman that blesses us but a man or a woman that has either one of these two poles of the regressed expression of the good person, the good king. They're either, I'm something, you're nothing. I'm the center. You're not the center. Gaze upon me. So it's like when you go to see your supervisor at university to discuss your work and he ends up talking about his own work more than your work. 
I'm the center. You're not, and you don't get the blessing. So you sort of somehow still feel unformed in some way. Or the other pole is, I'm nothing. You're something. You're the center. Uh, and those are people who are, um, in a way, abdicating responsibility for the work required to come into association with this Kundalini force. They don't want to do that work, but they want to be associated with it by proxy through somebody else who's embodying it for them. Right. And I can go through all these different, uh, all these different spheres have these kind of dynamics. And once you start to get this pattern, it really helps you navigate what's going on in the psyche and everything with a lot more clarity. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Your connection between the archetypes of, of the King. And I, I guess you've, you've, you didn't say it directly, but maybe it's the, the, the guru one could say that the cult leader type guru that takes advantage of those people who, who want to abdicate, uh, you know, the responsibility the, and revere and the real image of the king or queen, because there's a feminine and masculine expression, is sitting in the throne, which is a state of serenity, being in the seat of power, being in your own seat of power, and uh, the union say it emerges in the culture and dreams when we dream about cars, cars have to do with being in a seat of power. And often people have dreams of their car on ice and skidding and being out of control and everything, you know, these very common dreams. So it suggests you're not really fully rooted in, in your power, secured in it in some way. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, we could talk about, we could do a whole other podcast on this because it's a huge subject. We can't cover it all, but let's just very quickly go through the other, the other three, just so you have the ba very basic map. So you have, uh, for the warrior, the regress pull is either the sadist where they stick the sword in you or the masochist where you have a wound that fits the knife or the sword and you let someone stick it in you. And the, uh, way they describe the masochist or is the nice guy or the nice girl. So being a Buddhist or being spiritual isn't just about being nice. It's about being alert and responsive, responsive. So it can be, you know, if you're a spiritual person, you can be very wrathful, you know, in, in the pursuit of truth. If that's what becomes necessary, you'll really try and swing the sword and kill off what is damaging to the people so then uh, uh when it comes to the magician you have the um manipulator on the one hand um and the passive aggressive on the other so it's kind of invisible you know it's like your egg's overdone it's not quite the way you want it but you know my egg's fine <laughs> you know or sorry i forgot to take the bins out you didn't forget to take the bits out. It was a form of passive aggression. Well, and the the good magician then is all, always in relationship to the king, you know. So it, it informs the king, you know. It's the it's the archetype of understanding. So then, in the fourth uh, the fourth sphere of faith or or the lover is uh, either on the one hand it is the dynamic of addiction where you become shaped around false centers of aliveness, like, 
you know, stamp collecting or alcohol or sex or whatever it is there, there you experience a real sense of elevated aliveness, but only in association with that ritual surrounding that thing. It's not unconditional aliveness. You know, if you have to just sit in a chair in an empty room, you'll probably lose your mind. So, and then that, so that's the active side and the passive side of the lover would be um, impotence, which is expressed through the experience of boredom. So if you're ever bored, this is an issue to do with that because in essence, there's nothing boring about being alive. Um, so it's, so that is a very, very brief kind of overview. So all of this stuff gets worked on and polished up until ultimately you become like the royal person who can, in traditionally say, dance the four quarters, enter all four of these spaces in a mature way when needed. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting. I, I always like to see the way that we can integrate some of the the, the Western ideas mm-hmm. into what is traditionally, you know, Eastern Eastern spiritual approaches and traditions. So thank you. That's interesting. I've uh, I'm generally familiar with Young, but uh, I've got to I've got to dive some more into into some of his work. Uh, I was curious. So so one topic that I've discussed throughout the series is very relevant to me on my journey. I always like to ask anybody that I have on that's that's uh, here for an interview is, what is your relationship like with the divine? I like to relate with the divine for the most part as the divine mother, Kundalini Shakti. Mm-hmm. So I perceive her to be this embodied mothering figure, energy force, but that's not a universal experience. And so I'm curious, do you have a relationship with the divine uh, in, in some capacity. And what, what is that? Yeah, well, I think in terms of a ego self-access. So I think, I always think in those terms, um, and maybe a, a sort of everyday image of that would be like, okay, it's a military image, but you know, these giant oil tanker planes that fly and fuel these other jets, little mm-hmm. jets. It's like the divine is like this mothership and the the jets is like my so it's my big self and then the jet is like my human self and i have to come into a very careful and balanced relationship to it if i get too close it's going to be a big explosion and i'm going to become psychotic if i get if i stay too far away i'm not going to get any fuel from it and i'm going to just hit the earth and 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 not feel alive and feel jealous of other people for not feeling alive. So I have to find this balanced place where I can sip, I can sip on its power without identifying with it as being me. So, and then I might image that experience. If I, you know, I may say, well, I'm on a dialogue with this thing. So I may image it as Mother Mary or as, or as, uh, the divine mother in some way. So sure, this is sort of establishing the dynamic of prayer. And I do think conscious prayer, yeah, is a real thing. It's not like saying, please God, give me a Ferrari. It's more like, uh, you know, recognizing that there is this beauty, there is this blessing, there is this transformative being that is taking you on this journey that is 
that you're in association with and, and consciously approaching it, you know, respectfully and saying or doing or making all the right signals that I'm ritualizing that relationship so you can contain it with signs that are identifiable that give you some structure. For example, having a little shrine or something, you know, or something in, the, in your room gives you a physical orientation. So it's not just totally nebulous. Um, so, yeah, I do have these and I would encourage and, and, and accept the, the, the appropriateness of having these relationships. So there's this idea, which is very, very interesting. You probably not come across it called the collapsing of the sacred canopy. I have not. So, so the collapsing of the sacred canopy is when all of these energies kind of internally, it's like this constellation of the night sky, sky kind of collapses in on you and everything's identified as personal, as me and mine. So you, you know, you feel the force of Kundalini coming through you and you think it's you, you identify with it as being you and there's no separation between you and it. Whereas the re resurrecting of the sacred canopy is re-establishing this constellation of energies within your psyche, like a constellation of stars that you are beings or divine beings. And you can use the convention of you know, images or God, God, gods and goddesses as you choose, as you wish, as a means for resurrecting this canopy and separating your human self from all of this infinitely high voltage material that you'll never be able to fully humanize and so you have to find a way of drawing on it while staying human because if you don't then you know what you get is you know in a sense Putin's an example of this in a way because what he's done is he's Everyone needs an expression of this aliveness in one form or another, even if it's unconscious. So unconsciously, he's othered the Ukrainians. He's made them into an enemy. And then he's deployed all these massive weapons of war, you know, that are full of all this anger and rage and power, all this archetypal power on them to rain down death on them. You know, so this is what happens. It doesn't mean that if you're out of association with these energies that they go away. It means if you have an unconscious relationship to them, bad things happen. Right. Right. But the least... energies have to find a, a means of expression. You know, all this all this alluding to nuclear weapons and everything, this is all like Kundalini fantasy, inspired fantasy coming out of a, someone who's got an unconscious, unhealthy, sick relationship with those energies. Right, and seeking to express them in this regressed way, and and we see it on smaller scales too within the average yeah. person's individual life. They may have their own sort of nuclear wars uh, on a smaller scale. Well, it's beginning to happen more and more with people completely believing their own point of view, mm. as if it's the God-given truth. You know, it's it's not. You know these points of view, like the the you know the Trump people, the Mag the MAGA people, uh, they're they're expressing these points of view with such a force, with such grandiosity, you know that it completely 
obliterates their human intelligence. You know, they, 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 it's it's archetypal what's happening. You know, and and because they don't have their self structure is so weak, so un, un, undeveloped that you know these and the sacred canopy is collapsed in on them. Then, in a sense, these. Um, ideas they have are charged with the electricity of of divinity they're kind of godlike in their in the in in and you know that the aliveness they then get from association with that godlike energy is something they don't want to lose so they will not let it be taken away from them right but it's it's very unevolved yeah to, to- to put it simply, yeah, very unevolved. Interesting stuff. Mahisi, you've shared a lot of, of really fascinating things from your journey, your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciate the Buddhist perspective that you've mm-hmm. shared with us, some really potent teachings. You've brought some structure to things that some respects have no structure for many mm-hmm. on this path. They're just sort of you know going through it in the dark. And I really appreciate that. Clearly, your time training as a monk and and engaging in the Buddhist teachings have have served you well to bring you to a point of stability where now you can share with others and support them. So I thank you mm-hmm. for that. And I I know that uh, you have some work online, and I'd just like to invite our audience to connect with you if they would like mm-hmm. to explore some more of your teachings i know you have a youtube channel which i will uh, include in the description as well i've got to be honest i've got to be honest i don't post on the, the youtube channel that, that often but I, I would like to do more of it so if you okay. subscribe, if you subscribe it might inspire me actually to get it together to to do great some more. yeah go ahead and subscribe and and you do have some great videos from the past up there that are still timeless and very relevant. And, yeah. and I appreciate those as well. Uh, you've got a website. You can let people know what your website is and then some of the things that you offer there and how they can connect with you. Yeah, it's just four letters, S-A-T-I dot co, like in company, not dot com, but dot co, like in company. So sati.co. Great. you there. Okay, and I'll I'll put that in the description as well, and and there people can connect with you if they're interested in some of the the spiritual uh, contemplative counseling that you offer, some yeah. spiritual direction. Yeah, um, you host some retreats. You've got some some classes as well. I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface here today about some of the practices and ideas. Yeah, I'd be like happy to to talk to you again at some point maybe you know in the future we can see if we can get into some more material yeah that would be exciting and then for those who feel you know like uh some of the ideas Mahisi shared here you shared some some really practical tips for for being in in the midst of difficult experiences if you're listening and you feel like you know what i want to really have uh, some more clarity on those you can connect with Mahisi and and uh I think uh, you offer one-on-one support as well for yeah. those who would like to go a little deeper with you. Yeah. Great, great. Thank you so much, Mahisi. Today, it's been a, a really, really exciting conversation. I've got a lot out of it. So I'm going to have to to listen back and and do a little bit of meditation and contemplation on the things that you shared. 
I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank pleasure. You. Always like to talk about this stuff. Right. Right. I feel like uh, we've had to cut in a bit of an, an abrupt way, but uh, we are getting a little lengthy on the time here. So for our audience, please reach out, connect with Mahisi. For those listening, if you'd like to uh, check out some of the other interviews that I've got with other great, wise people, just like Mahisi, you can visit brentspirit.com. You can also check out the other uh, interviews and parts of the series on my YouTube channel, as well as on Spotify and Apple for the podcast. Thank you all for your attention today. And until next time, much love and peace. Peace.